Well, I was thinking about how I'd open this up, and part of me just wanted to say, well, May 21st has come, and May 21st is go gone. Um, that the world is still here, and of course we're sitting here, and um, it's been an interesting week for me emotionally. I don't know how it is for you, but somebody in the middle of the week, I don't know, people feel like they have to bring preacher's stuff, and uh, they, someone brought me a... Um, a full-page ad that was run in the USA Today um, that says Judgment Day, May 21st. I mean, USA Today, that must have been expensive. This is a part of it. And um, I just, that, that, that phrase captured me, like, Judgment Day, May 21st. Um, that must have been expensive, by the way. Uh, and then I opened MSNBC main page. I think this was Friday. And there is, on the main page, there was a picture of a family, and, and uh, underneath stated something like this, a family divided by a prediction of the end of the world. So it was kind of headline news this last week. And um, in one sense, I suppose, and I say this as gently as I can, um, because it's easy to come at this in a very arrogant sort of way, but in one sense, it's laughable. If, if, if you want to make sure that the Lord doesn't come on a date, then don't predict one. Um, Nevertheless, it's lamentable as well because there are probably a lot of disillusioned people this morning um, who may have based their faith more on the teachings of a pastor than on the teachings of Christ. Um, so something to be kept in, in mind. But I will say that um, things like this and in particular this, this title, Judgment Day, May 21st, 2011, I don't think there's a single person who didn't think, well, what if... And that kind of sent me into a, a, a series of thoughts and reflections that ended up changing the entire direction of my message on Friday evening. Now, that's, for me, I, I asked the Lord, okay, could you have given me a direction earlier in the week instead of on Friday evening? Because originally, I was going to talk about the work of the Spirit in the plan of God according to Ephesians 1 through 3. Um, and I had it almost done on Friday evening, but I had been wrestling all day with thoughts about this. Because um, I... Not to say that I want to focus on this per se. It just led me to a lot of reflections and thoughts that I wrestled with. And by the time I get into my, my car on Friday afternoon, I was like, okay, Lord, I, I, you don't want me to go in the direction that I've spent all week. So yesterday morning while you were at work day, um, I redrafted the whole thing in a totally different direction. Um, because I believe this is what the Lord wants us to go. And hopefully by the time we get to the end, you'll say, yeah, that was probably what we needed to hear. But I'll leave it to the Spirit to convince you of that. Um, let me take us into where I want to go. I want to I lead to one central, crucial question that I'm not going to answer to the end. But I want to I make a couple observations to kind of get us to this question. And they're observations regarding the text of Ephesians, because Ephesians actually does tie in to where God was, was leading me. Now, as I've said before, um, Ephesians is much like a plane ride that goes, has its high highs and low lows. And it begins with this, this is observation number one, it begins with this statement, or at least verse three, his, his formal teaching when he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And in the middle of that verse, which is kind of the seed verse of the entire uh, book of Ephesians, it, it talks about us, has blessed us, who is the us, the we? I believe chapter 2 of Ephesians expounds on and elaborates on who we are, the us 
of chapter 1, verse 3. It tells us who we are. The recipients of God's blessing in Christ that is every spiritual blessing. It expounds on who we are. That's kind of observation number one is that he's defining in chapter 2 who we are. But you'll also notice observation number two that, like, chapter one is just a stellar flight into the heights of redemption of who we are. You know, it takes us into our calling, into the glorious inheritance in the saints, into the immeasurable power of Christ being resurrected and also ending with the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's chapter one. It's like taking a a uh, 30,000-foot flight over redemption. And it's just awesome. It's positive. And then chapter two just descends into what I've called two valleys. Um, We might call the first one the valley of sin and death, and the second one the valley of the Gentiles. Now, in each of these valleys, it begins by taking us back to who we were, who we were, past tense. So, in the beginning of the valley of sin and death, he says, chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He says, you were. Emphasis, W-E-R-E. We're past tense, formerly. This is who you used to be, as if he's telling us we need to remember what we used to be before Jesus. Now, when you descend into the valley of the Gentiles, which begins in verse 11, uh, he explicitly tells us to remember who we were. So he says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, and then he states it again, picks it up in verse 12. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. So he keeps telling us in this, these two valleys to go back to who we were. We need to remember who we were. All right, now our focus is 1 through 10, the valley of sin and death. The question I want to ask with those observations in mind is this. Why does he take us back to who we were pre-Jesus? Why does he want us to remember who we were formerly? I mean, it's like your mom taking out a photo album of you back in the 70s and showing you who you used to be with your chops and your really bad fashion. Now, this isn't, Paul isn't taking us back to the 70s. He's taking us back to the moral corruption that defined us before we came to Christ. The question I want to ask is, why take us back? I mean, why not just continue to soar in the realms of positive thinking? Why go downhill and remind us of who we used to be? Now, I believe the answer to that question, why he takes us back and why he wants us to remember who we were, has a very important purpose in the life of a Christian that it, with, uh, without which we can't live a healthy life. There is a function of remembering who we were. And I like the answer. Why does he take us back to who we were? And I'm going to answer that at the end, but to get there, I want to look at who we were, which is verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, and then who we are now in Christ which is verses 4 and following. And then by the time you look at those two, I think you'll see what the answer is. In terms of who were we, I'm talking to believers here. If you're not a believer, then you're still in this place. Who were we pre-Jesus? Now, these are the the words, verses 1 through 3. Paul writes, 
And you, talking to believers, were, past tense, dead. There's a state of death, destined to death, dominated by death. You were dead in the trespasses and sins uh, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once, and notice he's speaking to you, referring to Gentiles in the first part, and now he includes himself. Even the great apostle Paul says, I was one of those people. I was there too. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now, who were we? Um, as people, he calls dead. Now, I don't have time to get into the details, but I will say there are at least three layers of who we were. There is a corporate layer, there is a spiritual layer, and there is a personal layer. In terms of the corporate layer, he lets us know that formerly we followed after the way of the world, which is, in the vocabulary of the New Testament, almost always a negative thing. The world is a river with its current running in a direction opposite the Lord and is heading fully towards destruction. With its attitudes, with its motivations, with its values, the world is fundamentally anti-God, at least God revealed in the Bible. And he says, you followed after it. You were in that current. And that current exists all around us, whether you choose to see it or not. Our young people and adults get swept up in it without even realizing they've adopted the philosophy and the values of the world, and they think like the world. And that at the center of that is this self-centered exaltation of the self. That is this what's in it for me and I want to be number one. I mean, that's really what energizes everything and influences every decision from the individual all the way up to the heads of state. If it's not the individual saying what's in it for me, it's at the grand level saying what's in it for us as opposed to the other countries that exist. And it dominates. So he's saying you were a part of this flow of the world as a corporate collective entity. That's who we were. But then he takes it another layer, and he says, you were also aligned with, and he calls it here, the prince of the power of the air. You're following after him too. That's a reference to the demonic or the satanic, the things that you can't see, what he will later call the principalities and powers of darkness that we wrestle against. So he's saying, you used to be following that. In other words, there was a league, an alliance with the satanic that you didn't even realize. You know, kind of the arch enemy of... Uh, Adam and Eve and the arch enemy of God's works, the one who wants to bring it all down. He's saying, you're in alliance with that. Now, we may not see it that way. Hopefully, we adopt biblical eyes and not cultural eyes or humanistic optimistic eyes of seeing everything as wonderfully good. The way Paul saw it is that behind the world that we see is the face of the demonic. Um, Jesus saw things the same way. He was talking to a group of Jews um, in uh, John chapter 8, verse 44, 45. And he sees in their attitudes and their actions nothing less than the face of the evil one. So he says to them, you're of your father the devil. Now that's pretty brutal. And you desire to do his will. He understands that behind the reality we see are unseen realities that are guiding things. And he's saying that's who you used to be. You aligned yourself with that. Uh, again, people may not see it that way, but that's how the Bible sees it. I, I'd be willing to bet that there were young um, German soldiers in Hitler's army who believed they were fighting the cause of justice only to find out later on they were serving the face of evil. And that's what he's saying. He says, you're on the wrong side. You were on the wrong side. So as a collective, you followed the world. 
Spiritually, you align yourself with uh, the demonic. And then there's this third layer. It's a personal, individual layer of how we see humanity itself. This third layer is here in verse 3 when he says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the, now here I underline some things, the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now I think most people, regardless of their religious background or belief system, recognize that we're fundamentally messed up, at least at some level, flawed and imperfect. I really have not met a person yet, maybe they're out there, I just haven't met them, who actually do think that they are perfect. I haven't met them. So most people have a sense that, yeah, I'm I'm flawed. That's why we use that Alexander Pope phrase of, to err is human. We accepted that we're messed up. What Paul does right here in this kind of personal, talking about the desires of the body and the mind, is he tells us that we're screwed up all the way through. Now, some think that, you know, the level of imperfection is, is like skin deep. Maybe it's like mold on cheese, that it grows on the outside layer, and then once you slice off the mold, the cheese is still good on the inside. And what he says here, he says, no, this, the sinful bent in the human uh, person, constitution, is messed up in desires, that is the volition of man, in terms of his mind and his body, through and through. You cut through that, that, that big old brick of cheese, and it's moldy all the way through. That's what he's saying, right? He's saying that's who you were, at these three different layers of collectively and spiritually aligning yourself with the forces of evil, and also in terms of the constitution of who you were. Fundamentally through you through, mind, body, and volition or will. Messed up. Fundamentally anti-God at whatever level. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, that everybody is as evil as they can be. There are a lot of different restraints that keep some from being as evil as they could be, but the impulse is still there. There's restraints of culture. There's restraints of law enforcement. There's restraints of common grace in a person's life. The person who had a a good, healthy family upbringing is probably going to have a better chance than the person who didn't. There are all of those factors that work in, but fundamentally, through and through, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, why does Paul take the time to remind us of all that stuff? Why does he, like, bring out our old baggage and say, this is who you used to be? It's kind of negative. I want to stay on the positive side of things. Well, let's take it one step further, and let's go into the darkest part of this. There's this last phrase that tells us by nature of our layers of fallenness that we were, past tense, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. I think if you were to take a poll of most Christians, the most unpopular word in the Bible would be this word, wrath because it's intensely strong. It has to do with a fierce kind of anger. And it's saying that you were, were, by nature, objects of God's fierce anger. Wrath. In other words, my sin wasn't an annoyance to him. It wasn't frustrating to him. It wasn't something that caused a mild irritation 
No, it brought out an angry fury and wrath in the heart of God. That's what it did. Now you're saying, man, that's a little too dark. I don't want to go there. Wait for a second because there is a bright light at the end of this. But I think all of us have to get our heads around this because he's reminding us that this is who we used to be, objects of God's anger and fury. And that takes me to the headline that I read on Friday, Judgment Day, May 21st. Now, obviously, that's a, it's a, it was wrong. Foolish. But it struck me as I looked at that Judgment Day. That there's a day on the calendar that's known only to the mind of God, and I underline only to the mind of God, in which that headline will be true. Judgment Day. Every prophet in the Old Testament said it would come. Jesus said it would come. All of the apostles said it would come. The cumulative writing and revelation of the entire Bible say that day is coming. A day of wrath and a day of anger. A day on a calendar that's going to take people by surprise. Jesus said people will be marrying, giving in marriage, and eating and drinking, doing the normal things of life, and all of a sudden it will sweep over them, and they won't even know what hit them. Now, I, I, I very much believe that, well, I know, we would know, you know, that the people on the shores of Indonesia back in 2004 on Christmas night, they went to bed as they did for years. And they didn't know that early in the morning God would rupture the foundation of the, the seafloor. And that while men, women, and children were sleeping, over 200,000 people would quite literally be wiped off the face of the earth. That day was on the calendar. They just didn't know it was coming. Now, I think about things that have happened this last several months. And I know this is dark, but I want you to feel it. Because if you don't feel it, then it just becomes an abstraction. And you don't understand where we're going. Because he's telling us to remember this. Uh, the people who went to bed, you know, the night of March 10th on the northeastern seaboard of Japan, get up in the morning, didn't know that the headlines would read all across the globe, tsunami hits. And while they're drinking their tea and their coffee, making their breakfast, all of a sudden houses are slammed together and everything's obliterated into toothpicks and rubble. I mean, it was an ordinary day, but it was a day marked on the calendar that came. You know, I, I venture to say when the people of uh, Tuscaloosa woke up on April 27th, they had no idea that a Category 5 or a F5 uh, tornado would just completely obliterate their town. I mean, it was just probably an ordinary day, April 27th, and next thing you know, everything's turned upside down. That's what I'm trying to say is just because, well, we're used to thinking the next day is just going to be the next day and the next day, but that's not necessarily the case because there is a day marked on the calendar of God's wrath and judgment. And I, I say that with a sense of fear in my heart because I put myself in the homes of people who I can't imagine what they experienced. And, and, and as a Bible-believing person, I believe that those are works of God. 
I know that may sound insensitive, but I believe that they're works of God. You know, there's this Psalm 46. It's haunting me when he says, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought devastation on the earth. In other words, he wants us to see it and to contemplate it. I think for a very potent reason. I mean, we easily read over Genesis 6, 7, 8, Noah, and it almost becomes kind of this fun, warm, fuzzy Sunday school flannel graph with Noah and the arky, and we have a little song, God told Noah to build him, and it's not something, all the two-by-two little giraffes and the elephants and the hippos and... You know, and, and you got the little boat in the, in the nursery, and the kids love to play with it, and it, it almost becomes this, this cute thing. And when you stop and really think about it, he spends three chapters talking about the fact that God wiped all mankind but eight people off the face of the earth. I don't know what kind of tsunamis took place in that time, but he took win, men, women, children, animals, and obliterated them. Because he was angry. He was angry. That's the wrath of God. And I believe in these things that we see happening, we are to see evidence of, of that's kind of what it looks like. That's, that there is a deadly side to God. Not unrighteous, not capricious, not impulsive, not disproportionate but perfectly just in doing those kinds of things. And we should see them as warnings of things to come. It's interesting, there's this little snippet in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus has asked about two tragedies that took place uh, in his time, would have made headline news in, in Jerusalem. And he's asked about them, and listen to his response because he turns it into a warning. It says, there were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So this is a man-made tragedy, a, a massacre of sorts. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, because some died, some lived, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. In other words, this massacre is, there's something worse coming. And then here's, a, here's a, um, uh, what we might call a natural disaster, which, again, if you're a Bible-believing person, you don't believe they're natural, as if the hand of God had no part in it. Where it says, of, uh, of those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, that is a natural catastrophe, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. This is just a, kind of a sign of things to come. He turns it into a warning. It's like, this is what's coming on everybody. Now, some might not like what I'm saying here because you think, right now you're painting God as kind of a, an evil person. And let me just say that that feeling comes from a bad place. Because... If I feel like God is unfair in doing that and doing the kind of things that shows a kind of fierceness and a deadly side to him, what that means is that I don't really get the fact that he is the almighty holy God. And secondly, I don't really realize the treacherous nature of my sin against him. 
You see, we tend to work from man up to God saying, how could you do this by looking around rather than working backwards of God down to man. I mean, if that's what he does and that's how he reacts to sin and he's righteous in all of that, then that means my perspective on my sin is far more superficial than I realize. That that's what it deserves and that's who I was. All right, I'll stop with the darkness. Because you're, you're like, Dan, why are you going here? I brought my unbelieving friend or wife, <laughs> my daughter. Listen, the problem isn't so much with why am I taking you there. The question is, why is Paul taking us there? Because we're simply following his train of thought. He's reminding us of who we used to be. And it's dark. You were, you know, collective in your following after the way of the world. You were following after the spirit of this, this age. And you are by nature fundamentally messed up and therefore children of his anger. So why remember this? Why is it important for the Christian to know this and believe this? To go backwards and look at the dark parts of who I was and what that brought on me in terms of the heart of God. And here we come to a massive U-turn in the text. An abrupt change of direction in which Paul now talks about, on the basis of what God has done in Christ, who we are now. So he changes in what I think Mashila calls these the two most wonderful words in the Bible, but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's a radical U-turn that goes from God's Wrath to his mercy goes from death, who we were, to life, who we are now. That he has made us alive with Christ, raised us with Christ, seated us with Christ. There's a huge elevation change between verse 3 and what follows. From being children of God's fury to sitting at the right hand in Christ. The distance between those is immeasurable. Now implied in this, notice he doesn't talk about the death of Jesus. He talked about that in chapter 1. But implied in this is the cross. I, I woke up on my bed. This isn't, I woke up on my bed on Friday morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, and I just thought about... I thought about what it would be like in these natural disasters to be a father of my family. And I just realized, gosh, Lord, there's a deadly side to you that needs to sober my heart. But then to remember that the cross is all about Jesus taking the fury of God's wrath in my place. And you know, it's so easy to make so light of that I mean, that when it says that 
He who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us, and the iniquity of us all was laid on him. There's no measure of the Father's anger towards the Son in that moment. That the, the wrath that is beyond measure was extinguished and poured out, but the truth of it is that God did it on himself. There's no other story of redemption that's like that. That the tsunami of God's wrath, you know, fell on him, and the, the, the tornado of his fury fell on him, and and that all of his love and mercy and grace, which are three amazing words in these verses, they all find their focal point and release to us through this person, Jesus. And then on the flip side, not only does he take that wrath, so there's no more wrath left. That's why we were children of wrath, but we aren't any longer. Don't have to fear the day of judgment, that name on the calendar. It's coming. We don't have to fear it because of him. But but look at, again, the elevation change. He then makes us alive with Christ and then raises us with Christ and places us in the highest place in God's kingdom, which is at his right hand where Christ is seated. The distance is immeasurable. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, children of wrath, and now we're at his right hand in Christ, which is a present reality, my friends. This isn't some future thing. This is how God already sees us and who in his realm we already are. That's why he puts those in the past tense. He already has seated you. Now, you can't see that with your physical eyes, but you can believe it by faith that he gives you. And that that's how we are to now see ourselves as I have been made alive and I have been raised and I am now seated with him. It's a bit like the Narnia Chronicles of Narnia series in which Susan... And her, gosh, Peter and Susan, in one world, are just ordinary individuals, but a completely different dimension. They're kings and queens. And the only realm that really matters to the Christian is the realm in which God lives and how he sees things. And that's who you are right now. He sees you that way. You may be an ordinary person with the eyes of this life, but this is how God sees you, and someday your faith will receive sight, and you'll see that it's true, and it has always been true when you came to faith in him. That's who we are now. Now back to the question. So why take us to the dark parts? Why tell us about who we were? And I believe the simple answer to that question is that so we would know the immeasurable distance that grace went to. Think of it this way. You're flying in a plane and you're... you're ground is covered with clouds, and you see a mountain peak popping up um, through the clouds. And you might say, that's a pretty cool peak. Must be pretty high, but you still don't know how high it is because there's no anchor point. Can't see the bottom of it. But if you have an anchor point by which to measure, well, then you can understand how big it is. So in our way of understanding things of measure... We always start at sea level. That's the anchor point. So how high is Mount Shasta sticking up through the clouds? Well, if you go from sea level to the top, it's 14,162 feet. The anchor point gives you something by which to measure the height. How can you measure the height of God's love if there is no anchor point? Which is the whole purpose he takes us back and reminds us who we were. You forget who you were and you become familiar with grace. And God's love becomes shriveled 
Because you don't remember how far he's brought you. You see, the importance of the Christian always keeping in mind two things. Who I was, an object of God's fury, and now who I am now is at his right hand. And you lop off where you were, and the measure's messed up. There's no anchor point. And I think that creates a lot of dysfunction and, and shriveled hearts when it comes to being a Christian. Because grace is no longer amazing. Why? Because you forgot how far it reached down. Who I was. That the, the enormity of the cross all of a sudden becomes a little bit smaller because we forgot who we were. If you've ever met a person that's successful in this life and healthy, typically there are people who remember where they were because it engenders a sense of humility about them. And if we remember who we were before Christ, completely undeserving, children of wrath, because we were completely screwed up, but he made us alive and seated us at the right hand, elevation change of, of immeasurable size, well, then you're amazed by grace each moment and by God's love. It's not just this high. It just keeps going because the bottom is so low. So it creates a sense of gratitude and a sense of joy and because it's that big. You have to remember who you were. The Christian life is about driving forward with a rearview mirror. Our main emphasis is knowing this is where God is taking us because of Christ, but you also have to have a rearview mirror to know where you've been. Who was I before? It not only makes a difference in how we relate to God, whether we're overwhelmed by grace or whether we're just familiar with it and we, we lose the sense of awe. But it also impacts how we treat each other. Because if we remember who we were, dead in our trespasses and sins and children of wrath, well, then we're going to be a lot more humble with each other, aren't we? You forget who you were, you become impatient with people. You can't empathize anymore with their weaknesses. But if we keep in mind who we were and who we are now, well, then we're at least in a position with those two things of remembering who we were, which is why Paul keeps taking us back. It's not to, not to beat us or put us in a depression. It's the opposite. It's like, I want you to see the measure of grace, and you forget this, you forget how high you went, which is probably why he ends chapter 3 with, you know, that he prays that we would comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth he's thinking measure. And why he ends with this, chapter 3 with this kind of prayer that says now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever amen and you're never going to say that or feel that or live in the light of that if you forget who you were never forget Christian who you were, but always remember who you are now in Christ. I believe that makes a huge difference to the human heart. And so I hope you'll maintain that rearview mirror perspective and recognize there's a reason to recognize who I was, an object of wrath. But he's made me in Christ 
king. That makes my heart sing. Father, I thank you for your goodness and kindness. I thank you for Paul's thoughts that you inspired. I just pray that each day that we wake up, regardless of what happens in the circumstances around us, that we would live in the light of who we once were, down deep in the the valley of sin and death. But then remember who you've called us and made us to be in Christ, which is so overwhelming to the human soul. I can understand why, why David said, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord. Lord of hosts, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord because you're that good. Keep us humble, Lord, by reinforcing who we were, but also who we are now in Christ. Thank you. Thank you.